0: how working for King Jesus gives purpose and meaning to our jobs. That's what we're going to start this week, men's theology. So uh, my prayer is that for those of you men who maybe have not been able to make it to men's theology or who haven't come so far or did not like the previous book or whatever the case may be, that you will re-engage. And so uh, I'm praying for that. I'm praying that the men of our church will take this time together seriously, that we as brothers will sharpen each other and dig into what I think will be very useful, very practical, and very theologically rich and enriching for us as men of the church. So please do uh, come along to that. So it's good to be back. It's good to be back teaching God's Word. We were here last week, and I will say that I really did enjoy being here listening to preaching, just sort of sitting and listening to preaching. It's the first time I had done it, I realized that I was talking to somebody afterwards that I have not been here on a Sunday and not preach, so that was that was a blessing, and I thank you, uh, Walt. Where where is he? There he is. I uh, thank you, Walt, for uh, for doing that. I just want to thank Will, Mike, and Walt for preaching over the last few Sundays. And I hated to drop the bomb on Will at uh, eleven o'clock on Christmas Eve. <laughs> he had Friday. We had talked a little bit about how impossible it was you know he had already he told me this week he said we had gotten to Friday so I was pretty sure we were good and he would not need to fill in for me uh for those of you who are in the dark right now we, we had a baby on Christmas day and so I was going into Christmas Will was going to fill in preaching and found out uh my wife was in labor about uh about 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve so so Will got the phone call then he was lightly asleep and uh had to, had to kick into motion. But uh, the good news was he had already been preparing, so it wasn't something that was just kind of thrown on him, so he stayed up all night and all that. So thank you, three guys, for, for preaching the word here. And also want to just thank all of you for your prayers, for meals, for cards, for your kindness towards us as we've had a child. What a wonderful church family this is. It's such a blessing to belong to a church family, but it's such a blessing to belong to this church family. And uh, I know that many of you have experienced that as well. As you've had people in your family pass away or you've had children or other things going on in your lives, you have experienced the love and kindness of Jesus. That's ultimately what it is. The love and kindness of Jesus flowing out from his disciples, from his people here at Four Corners. So thank you for that. So today we jump back into Titus after a little bit of a hiatus, we've been away from Titus now for about a month. With Christmas, we, we went into some Christmas passages and then with us having a baby, we've been out of touch with Titus for a while, which is kind of funny because we got all the way to the very end and then we're having to take a break and now we're coming back for the very last section. So we're coming back to Titus, we're gonna be in Titus, but then we're gonna be out again uh, very shortly. Today, we will look at the last section of this epistle from Paul to Titus. And then next week will be a final reflection on the book as a whole. And so the hope next week is that we will kind of travel back over everything that we've looked at, tie up this book and uh, wrap it up and be able to then move on to our next series, which will be an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. So that's where we will be spending time for Probably quite a bit of time. Uh, I, once again, I can't really tell you how long, but we will, we will be there for a, a good bit and just enjoying the riches of that wonderful passage. I think in a lot of ways, our time in Titus has brought us back to kind of ground zero for the Christian life, brought us back to how, how the gospel of grace and how good works and godliness and all of that come together perfectly in the Christian life. And uh, I think as we've gone back to the beginnings of the Christian life, really some of these first principles, it's helpful to go back to a passage like the Sermon on the Mount. Also very foundational for understanding who we are in Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do in our lives and how we are to live out the Christian life. So that's where we are headed next. So as we come today to the final section of Titus, What we find, I think, in this passage is a picture of gospel partnership. So go ahead and turn there, if you will. Probably already there. Gospel partnership. And we're looking at these final verses, this final section. It it has the heading in the ESV, final instructions and greetings. Not the kind of passage, you know, not the most uh, exciting passage. It's kind of like, studying the gene, uh, genealogy or, uh, or something of the sort. You know, this, is, this doesn't appear to have very much in it of uh, Christian application. But I think that what we do find here is very important for us as we come to the end of our study. So a gospel partnership. Let's read these verses, 12 to 15. This is God's word. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. ask for the Lord's help and for his transforming power among us. Our Father, reminder after reminder, we receive from you of your great love for us. Of your faithfulness, your kindness, your attentiveness to our needs and to our prayers, your care for us as we relate to one another as we live in community, the ways in which you shower us with so many good things. And as you tell us in your word that you even cause the sun to rise upon the unjust, you provide rain for the unjust, you provide salvation for the unjust as you have reconciled us to yourself, those who were ungodly and undeserving of your love, undeserving of your presence, undeserving of the glories that await us in Christ Jesus. And yet you have manifested yourself to us. All of the good things of life, but even more in the person of your son. You have given us his spirit. You have transformed us, given us new hearts, given us a love that we did not have before, a confidence in you that we did not have before your spirit changed us. A pursuit, a fresh meaning, a fresh purpose, fresh desires, objectives, that we lacked before. You have established yourself as our God and you have dethroned the idols of our hearts. Those things which could never satisfy us, you've taken them away. And Lord, we, we struggle and we're struggling here today, all of us, with the idols of this life, with things that we lean upon and trust in things we love so deeply that we elevate to the status of absolute, to the status of must-have to be happy. And God, you today are saying to us from your word, as you always are, I alone am your God. I am the Lord. I alone am God. And Father, I pray that today we would see that through your word, that we would see that and we would see the centrality of the gospel. We would see Jesus Christ through the grace that he offers us, he mediates to us, that we would see him and that through this, as we come to the end of this book, that we would be excited about the mission that you've called us to, about the gospel partnership that you've called us to, about the work of the kingdom that you've called us to. God, help us to be faithful but even when we're not, help us trust in your faithfulness. We know that our faithfulness to you is weak, but you are supremely faithful, always faithful. You never fail us, God. Help us to trust in that above all, and through that trust to live the Christian life, to live this wonderful life outlined for us even in this very small epistle. Thank you for our time together today. We pray your blessing upon it. We ask for conversions of heart. For all of us, those of us who are in Christ and those of us who are not, would you turn us to you, the living God, through your son. God, we ask for these things in Jesus' name and we trust you for it. Amen. So what is the big idea for today? What are we going to be looking at? And it's this. This gospel of God's grace mediated through Christ that Paul has so fervently and clearly declared throughout this epistle. I mean, we've got these two amazing mountain peak passages on the wall here. We've got Titus 2, 11 to 14, and Titus 3, 3 to 7. These amazing nutshell versions of the gospel as it's been explained to us, so fervently and clearly explained by the apostle here. This gospel is a message that is carried along and lived out through the partnership of those who have been transformed by it. That is the means by which we live out the gospel. That is the means by which it is propagated. We must partner together those who have been changed in the heart by God's grace. So I want you to notice this before we get into the details of this passage. The big thing that you should see here is all of the people mentioned as partnered together in this little passage, verses 12 to 15. Look at all of the people mentioned here, just kind of going through looking at it. When I, there's Paul, send Artemis, there's another figure, or Tychicus to you do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Who's he talking to? Titus. So we have Paul, we have Artemis, we have Tychicus, we have Titus. Then he says in verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. We have those two guys on their way. Verse 14, let our people. He's talking about the Cretan Christians, the believers that that Titus is entrusted to, to preach to and to instruct and to care for. They're in Crete. So we have those individuals. And then we have at the end of the passage, all who are with me send greetings to you. Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to all of the people who are partnered with him in the gospel, wherever he may be. We don't know exactly where he is, not in Nicopolis, it seems, because he says, I'm going to winter there, not here. So he's not in Nicopolis, but wherever Paul is, he has this group of coworkers, of fellow workers with him in this place. So just notice, as we go through this passage It's filled with these various individuals, various people are mentioned, and these people are partnered together for the gospel. And there are a number of things that we can observe about this gospel partnership as we see it portrayed here and as we seek to apply it to ourselves. So these are the five things that I want to focus on this morning things that we see here about this gospel partnership that involves all of these individuals. The first thing that I want you to see is the ongoing work, the larger mission, the shared responsibility, the brotherly affection, and the main concern. So let's go ahead and look at the first one, the ongoing work. The ongoing work. This is what Paul says in verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. We have already been informed of the close relationship that exists between Paul and Titus. Go back to the beginning of the book if you have your Bible open. Titus 1, verse four, what does Paul call Titus? He refers to him as my true child in a common faith. And this means a couple of things. I think first and foremost, it means that Titus is a reliable apostolic delegate. That means that as Paul is carrying on the mission of the early Jesus movement, he's sending out people to preach the gospel. Titus is one of those who is reliable, both in terms of his faithfulness and in terms of his message, his doctrine, his adherence to the truth. He is a true child of the apostles' theology. He's a true child of this and a true child of that message. He is a true child in a common faith, Paul says. But it also means that he is a true child in the sense that he kind of owes a kind of allegiance to Paul. Paul was probably instrumental in Titus' conversion. And so you have this very close relationship between Paul and his son in the faith, Titus, I don't know if you've ever had someone who has discipled you, maybe when you were younger, and someone who invested quite a bit in your growth as a Christian believer. And you can think even now about that person. Maybe you've thanked them, maybe you haven't. You should thank that person. Let that person know how instrumental they were in your life. But that's the kind of relationship that existed between Paul and Titus, his true child in a common faith. And Paul anticipates Titus transitioning from his current work in Crete to meet up with him in Nicopolis for the winter. So look back, chapter one, verse five, we have this reason for Titus even being in Crete. Why in the world has Paul sent Titus, his apostolic delegate, to the churches in Crete, to this island, this tiny little island? And he says there, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so Paul writing this letter to Titus at the beginning is telling him exactly what he's going to be doing. And then by the end of the letter, he's informing Titus, but this is not going to be a permanent thing for you. I want you to come to me at some point in the future in Nicopolis, where we will winter together. We will stay there during the winter. It was dangerous to travel in the winter, even as it still is today. Uh, But it was particularly dangerous to travel in the winter there, especially by ship or any other way, really. And so this would not be something, you find this verb, it's actually a verb. There is a, a Greek verb for wintering. It was so common to go stop in a place and stay there in winter. We don't really speak of wintering, Uh, But that was something that was very common then. And this city of Nicopolis is probably on the western side of Greece. And we learn from 2 Timothy 4 that Titus, so, so 2 Timothy is written after Titus. We hear at the end of Titus, Paul telling Titus to come to him at Nicopolis and winter there with him. And then when we get to the end of 2 Timothy, which is written later we have Paul referring to Titus saying that he's gone to Dalmatia. Dalmatia is a province, a Roman province that's north of Nicopolis. And so we find there that Titus has not only done what Paul has asked him to do, we, we infer that, but he's also gone on to other gospel missions in Dalmatia, modern day Croatia or Serbia. So we know that Titus will go on and do all of these things. But this movement of Titus so what I want you to see. This movement of Titus is not to take place until after, only after another gospel worker is sent to Crete. It will either be Artemis or Tychicus. That's probably Tychicus or probably Artemis. I'm sorry, but we don't know for sure which one it was. We don't know anything about this guy, Artemis. There's no other reference to him. We we know no details about him, but Tychicus is someone who appears throughout the New Testament. And he is probably the one who brought the letter of Colossians to the Colossian believers and who brought Ephesians to those believers there in Ephesus. So these are fellow workers of Paul, just like Titus, just like Timothy, going around with Paul, sharing the gospel, planting churches, ministering to those churches, delivering correspondence, sending news. That's who these guys are. One of these men, either Artemis or Tychicus, will continue and build upon Titus's work of appointing, teaching, declaring, rebuking, reminding, and serving as an example. One of the things I did when I first went through Titus as I was preparing for for this series is I underlined all of the imperative verbs. And there are quite a few where Paul gives Titus instruction or command. And he says, Titus, this is what you need to do. Do this, do that, do this. And if you go throughout the book of Titus, that's what you find. He's appointing elders. He's teaching right gospel and right conduct, conduct and gospel that go together. He's declaring with authority. He's rebuking those who will not hear the truth. He's reminding the believers of the way they ought to be and the way they ought to think. And he's serving as an example. This is what Titus is going to be doing while he is in Crete. And whoever is sent to replace Titus, whether it's Artemis or Tychicus, is going to continue this same work, building upon all of the things that Titus has been doing. So while the workers will change, the work remains. And that's one of the things that you've seen here at Four Corners. That's one of the things that every church has seen is some of you have been here since the beginning. And you've seen a lot of different workers. And I don't just mean like paid pastors or elders. I mean just Christians who've been here working. Some have moved away. Some have gone on to other churches. The the staff has changed and and, and morphed. I mean, even here within our church recently, you know, Will transitioned off of the staff to take another job and Doug has transitioned onto the staff. We We see differences and changes throughout the time. But although the workers have changed, the work here has never changed. The work here has remained. There has always been a need for gospel growth and gospel work here in this place, and there will continue to be that. So the main thing that I want to highlight for you at this point is this. In the midst of all of this translocal movement and cooperation that we see in this little passage, all of this movement and all of these relationships, in the midst of all of this, the work on the ground in this specific place, Crete, must not be forgotten or abandoned. It is an ongoing work that needs the attention of workers. Paul doesn't say to Titus, you know, do these things, stay there. And then when you're done, uh, kind of, you know, you've, you've situated things a little bit. You've, you've set the ship in motion. You've put it off to sail. Then you just go on and leave and everything will be fine. Paul is thoughtful about the individual concerns, the specific needs of the local bodies of believers that exist in this tiny, even seemingly insignificant place. And in fact, not only tiny and insignificant, but difficult, these are challenging people. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Who wants to be described like that? Well, that's the way that the ancient world described the Cretans. You see this in the opening chapters. In chapter one, as Paul describes the Cretans, or he says, uh, he doesn't say that's from his own opinion. He says, this is what one of their own people says. This is who these people are. So not only is this a tiny insignificant place that Paul could have just easily ignored, so there's better things to do. This is a place that's difficult, a place where there are many, he says, who oppose it many who fight against the gospel of God's grace in Christ and the life that accords with it, many people who are saying, I don't want anything to do with that. Nonetheless, Paul says, the work there must go on. And I think there's one implication for us as a church, at least, but one that I want to really dive into, and that is any gospel partnership. We think about all this movement here all these relationships, any gospel partnership that we undertake or any attention that we give to what's going on out there, outside of of this body of believers must not cause us to lose sight of the ongoing work needed here. That the work here is never going to end. It will never end until Jesus comes back. You will never be holy enough to where you don't need work. I will never be holy enough to where I don't need work. I will never understand the gospel enough that I don't need it constantly preached to me daily by my brothers and sisters in Christ. And you won't either. This church will always need work. And that must not be neglected for what is going on out there so two things to consider here first of all some of you maybe i don't know this for sure but some of you may be thinking what in the world is going on with this whole membership thing i mean we're doing all these documents i've signed my name like 17 times you know i filled out what, what in the world is going on with all this membership process all this formality and everything else well, here's what I want you to understand. It's not just a, a way of sort of ticking a box or you know, making you jump through a hoop or, or doing something churchy because we just need to do something churchy. It's not that at all. It really is about this idea of partnership. There's other dynamics, but, it, but it's this. When you come to Four Corners and you say, I want to become a member, I'm gonna do what is necessary in order to, to become a member of this local body. You are saying, I want to partner with a specific people. I want to serve a specific body in a specific area for the glory of God. I want to partner with these people in gospel partnership. That's what you're saying. That's that's what it is. So don't get lost in all of the kind of formality of it or in the paperwork or the other things. Just think to yourself this way. I am partnering in the gospel with these people and I'm gonna love them and they're gonna love me and I'm gonna serve them and they're gonna serve me. I'm gonna fail them and they're gonna fail me, but we're gonna do Jesus's work together. We're going to commit to it, we're going to dig in deep, and we're going to make this our life. That is what it means to be a member of a local church. I also want to encourage you in this, if, if you find yourself sometimes being so interested in all these other things going on out there, but not really interested in what's going on in the local church here in this place, the ongoing work here, That may be an indicator that you don't really understand the way that God wishes to work in the world, that he's doing something here in this local church as he's doing in any local church. And sometimes we sort of are reaching out out there doing this sort of outside mission, but there's really no emphasis or attention here to what God is doing in this place. So just a reminder here, I think for us, that there is an ongoing work here, just as there was in Crete, there's an ongoing need here just as there was in Crete. But there is more to consider as we move to the next verse. So let's go to verse 13. So we have the ongoing work, and we also have the larger mission. So these two things have to be held together. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. Nothing. You know, sometimes we fall into a dichotomy of inward looking or outward looking. This is something we've talked about a little bit as a church, you know, from from the pulpit, we've talked a little bit about this. Are are we an inward looking church, an outward looking church? To what extent, what ratio, what percentage? And to me, I think just as with grace and godliness, it's a false dichotomy. We're both, we're always both. We're always attentive to the needs that God has presented to us here as we serve this local body as we covenant with this local body, but we're never missing the larger mission into which this work is situated. And so we have the ongoing work here with the previous point, and we have the larger mission out there going on around us with this verse. So here we have two other individuals. we we're introduced to, not Artemis and Tychicus. We've moved beyond those guys. One of those will come to Crete. But here we have two others, Zenus. We don't know who he is either. This is the only place he's mentioned. And then we have Apollos, and he is a, a, kind of a fairly fina- pronounced figure in the New Testament, but he doesn't really get a lot of space devoted to him. If you wanna know a little bit about Apollos, go to Acts 18. That's where he is described. He's a Jew from Alexandria, and he's kind of known for two things. He's an eloquent speaker and he's knowledgeable in the scriptures. This is who, this is the way that Paul, he's, he's uh, particularly so in both of those areas. He's, he's kind of uh, distinguished in those ways. And so he pops up in a number of places. In fact, in the church of, at Corinth, they began to split up into factions. And there's a group who says, we are of Apollos. We are Apollos, Apollosites. I don't know what you, would, what you would call those guys, what they called themselves, but they were followers as they saw it of Apollos as the great teacher. And then you had those who were of Paul and those who were of Cephas and then those who were of Christ as though he's just sort of a, among the other guys. And Paul was coming in bashing this craziness, this faction, this divisiveness. And he was saying, this is ridiculous. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos but servants? It is God who does the work. We are nothing. One plants, one waters, but it is God who gives the growth. Who are Paul and Apollos? But that just gives you a little bit of an understanding of Apollos. He's a pronounced figure, but doesn't get a lot of mention in the New Testament. These guys are coming to Crete. And it appears that these men are the ones who are delivering this letter from Paul to Titus. So oftentimes when you find in a letter a mention of an individual who they're supposed to greet? That's an indication, probably, that this is the person who's bringing the letter, bringing the letter and handing it to Titus. Sailing in, getting off the ship, coming in. Titus, here, a letter from the apostle, and Titus opens this thing up, and he reads it, and it has come by the hands of these two guys, Zenus and Apollos. And Paul is essentially telling Titus to provide for the practical needs of these two missionaries. In other words, after they drop off the letter, help, help them. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. After these guys drop off this letter, help them to regroup and carry out their mission elsewhere. Notice this. Zenos and Apollos just passing through. The focus, the emphasis is not entirely on Crete. Crete's important. Paul's gonna send another guy there to take Titus's place. But the emphasis, the focus is not on Crete. Apollos and Zenos, they're not really gonna stay there and do any work in Crete. They're stopping in. Titus is responsible for equipping them and for sending them out there. Out there. There's more places. There's other work. There's other gospel opportunities. There are other people beyond Crete who need to hear the saving message of Jesus, who need to know that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So yes, there's work to be done in Crete, but the mission is so much larger than Crete. Or let me say it this way. Yes. There is work to be done at Four Corners Church. There's work to be done here. But the the mission is so much larger than Four Corners, so much larger than what we are doing here. The gospel partnership that is portrayed in this passage reminds us that there is a larger mission that is always going on around us, always moving. It's vibrant. In fact, if you've ever gone to a church or had a church where a missionary came in and shared something with you, and, and here's the thing you know, there is a, there's a, a false idea out there that you become a missionary, you go off and just, I mean, it's like bells and whistles, crazy stuff starts happening. You know, you, you go out you do it to a mission field and it's just incredible. And you expect these missionaries to come in and share their testimonies it's gonna be like, 17,000 people were converted and we saw demons cast down. all of these things were happening. And it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we know even with the father of the modern missions movement, William Carey, it took, I think, seven years This is a man who kicked off modern missions and who had such a tremendous impact, not only in gospel growth in India, but also in the institutional growth and health of this nation. Seven years before he saw a convert and his wife went crazy and died. I think they lost a child as well. Seven years. So you don't always see that kind of explosive gospel growth but that work is going on and those of you who have sat in and heard a missionary uh, share their testimony you've realized that you've been cued into that you've you've realized that God is doing things outside of your little box that he is working always doing mighty things in his son's name all around the world in all the families of the world he is working in incredible ways So there is a larger mission going on all around us, of which we are simply a speck, a tiny, small part. In case any of us has an inflated view of self, nope, a speck, just a speck. Our needs, our concerns, our struggles are only a tiny slice of the whole, just a small slice that goes for your life and all your struggles, all your needs, all your prayers. That goes for our our church, all the prayers and concerns that we have as a church, as an elder board, just a tiny slice of the whole. And just think about this for a moment. How many divisions, how many arguments and quarrels and all kinds of craziness in the church would be avoided if we did not have an overinflated view of all of these things. If we did not have an overinflated view of all of our little needs and struggles and situations and the things, you know, people joke about the color of carpet and walls and so forth. That's kind of an extreme version of that. But, but, but all kinds of things that we focus on, we, it's because we have an overinflated, ultimately, it's because we have an overinflated view of our significance. We should not. We should realize we are just a small part of what our Lord God is doing all over the world. As the kingdom of God is breaking in, as the Holy Spirit reigns in the hearts of men, and one day the Christ himself will come back, crowned with glory and honor on the clouds of heaven, with a myriad of angels, with the souls of his saints, he will come back and he will judge the world, raise the elect from the dead. We will meet him in the air and reign with him forever. That's what we wait for, and that's happening, even now, all around us. Even when things seem dull and boring around here, things are always happening because the Lord is working. So how do we respond to this reality? What do we do with this? I think there are a few practical questions for all of us, so just kind of run through these quickly. So first question, how can your gospel community group join with other believers in our community to carry out the work of the Lord? How can we as a church engage with other churches? Say, brother, sister, I know you don't go to our church. You may even have some differences we don't really like, but we love you because you're a brother and sister in Christ and we wanna be about the work of the Lord here. How how can we help? How how can you help us? How can we help you? How can we get busy about God's work together? And to what extent are we, gospel community group leaders, those of you who serve in this position, pursuing this, pursuing this for your group, finding out what's God doing around here in Noonan? What's God doing beyond Noonan? What's God doing out there? I wanna get plugged in. I wanna get involved in that. We don't need to be so focused on just our little group and our little meeting and our little things. We need to be out there engaged in this partnership that's going on all around us. How can I, as your pastor, do more to build relationships and partnerships with other pastors? This is something that I need to be doing more of as as I'm talking to these guys saying, what's your church doing? How can we relate with you? How can can we work together to to solve this need, to, to support this situation? How can we be more intentional about equipping people within our church to go out and plant or revitalize other churches. Now, one of the things that can happen, and this goes back to the previous point is, you, you know, in church planting, one of the things that can happen is you just sort of, you're, you're just church planting just for its own sake. And, and so you just plant a church. It doesn't matter how healthy it is or how well equipped and resourced it is. Then you're just like uh, the next one, uh, the next one. And you're just trying, it's just about numbers, just about planting as many churches as you can. and They all die. And it's like, why did we do that? That was foolish. So it's not that. It's planting strong, healthy, good, vibrant, long-standing, biblical, gospel-centered churches that will then go on and plant other churches. So to what extent are we doing this as a church? You know, I've asked, I've talked to some of you, if you're interested in church planting, if you're interested in that, come and talk to me. If you're interested in vocational ministry, come and talk to me. I'm, I'm interested in knowing what's on your heart the things that you have prayed about? And then finally, how can we turn our eyes to the nations? You know, there are people in the world who've never heard the name of Jesus. We all know that, but we don't really think about it. People all over the world who have never heard of Christ, our savior. They don't know anything of that. They don't know their hearts can be regenerated and renewed and they can become instruments of God in the world. They don't know that they can be zealots for good works, possessions of God, owned by God. They don't know that all their sins can be forgiven, that God justifies the ungodly in their sins, out of their sins. They don't know. They don't know Jesus. They're on their way literally to hell. And God says, go. Go to them that's what it means to be on gospel partnership to be in gospel partnership and to recognize that there's a larger mission all around us so these are the sorts of questions that we are meant to ask I think as we come to this picture of gospel partnership at the end of Paul's letter to Titus I'll share with you brief, briefly briefly uh, the other day I was talking to my dad on the phone. We were talking on the cell phone and he got a, He was in his church office. He got a, He's a pastor. He got a phone call from a missionary, some random missionary, just asking for support. And you know, uh, he, he we we had just started our conversation. So he set the phone aside and I, I could hear him talking to this missionary. And the guy asked him for support, and and, uh, the church, you know, was not able to support in this specific way. But my dad began to pray with him. It was just a seemingly mundane conversation with my dad on the phone. I didn't expect to be moved by this. But just to hear him pray with this guy, and to know it's bigger than us, It's bigger than me, it's bigger than my dad's church, it's bigger than all of us. That God is doing amazing things around the world and things that we wouldn't know about if we didn't run into other people and talk to them. If we didn't get phone calls, if we didn't get emails, if people didn't send us letters, we wouldn't know of all the mighty things that God is doing in the lives of people all over the world. And it reminded me of the unity of purpose as we move forward as God's people, it reminded me of the unity of the people of God, that we are, we are partnered up. We will see, my dad will see that man in heaven, and I will see that man in heaven. I have no idea who he is. And we will see all kinds of people and get to know all kinds of people in heaven that we've never met or never even considered, never even thought of. This is the larger picture, which we must take account of. Thirdly, the shared responsibility. Titus three fourteen, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Up to this point, we've had only the names of specific individuals, key personalities involved in the planting and leading of early churches. And you know, it's funny because if you were to think about Christianity today, probably we all kind of do this and it's not the way it ought to be, but it's inevitable. We tend to think of individual people. We tend to think, you know, uh, I I just mentioned him. uh, We'll, 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 would be mentioning him, John Piper or Timothy Keller or uh, all of these other guys that we, that we follow. And there's many, many more, Matt Chandler and so forth, these, these well-known guys, and that's who we tend to think about. And we do this with church history too. So you go back, you think about the patristic period. Well, who are we talking about? We're talking about the church fathers. We're talking about specific individuals, John Chrysostom and Augustine and Ambrose and Jerome and so on and so forth, and the, the Reformation. Well, immediately what comes to mind? Movement among the people? No. You think about Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and uh, all of these other guys. That's what we tend to think about. Key personalities involved in the planting and leading of early churches. But now we come here to what is the real powerhouse behind the growth of the early Jesus movement. The ordinary folks who make up the churches. How did Zenas and Apollos go on to do their work? through the ordinary folks in the churches of Crete, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, those mentioned in chapter two, who now Paul says, get our people doing stuff for these brothers, get our people coming together to help these brothers, to help Zenos and Apollos, to equip them so that they can go on and do the mission that they need to be about. Remember in chapter three, verse eight, Paul says this in Titus here, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul is essentially saying this, okay, the rubber is going to meet the road when Zenus and Apollos come to you. So it's not just, you know, we think about good works, it's not just this vague idea, like, yeah, good works sounds really good. Good works sound really good when you're in your devotional time with a cup of coffee and you're reading the Bible and you know you're just nice and warm and cozy, and you, you just, you know, there's nothing lying in front of you. Good works sounds great. We meditate on it, sounds exciting. But good works doesn't sound all that exciting when it's right on your doorstep and it hurts a little bit. It costs a little bit. It involves lots of sacrifice. That's when good works doesn't sound very good at all. So Paul's saying, uh, there's a good work opportunity coming up for you. Zenos and Apollos come into town, get our people geared up to do what I've been telling them they need to do. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality That's essentially what he's asking. Titus, encourage the people to do this very thing. Have you ever thought about this? It really does, the work of the Lord, really does come down to you. Have you ever thought about that? Do you, you know, we tend to think that it's a, uh, it's over there. It's going to happen over there. Somebody else is going to do it. But if everybody felt that way, there'd be absolutely nothing getting done. It really does in a real way come down to you, come down to me. Will we do good works? Will we support and sustain the work of the Lord all over the world as it's going on? One of the things we don't talk a lot about here, we don't preach a lot about it, is giving. Giving. And we preach the passages that come up. We talk, we we preach the gospel from the word as we go through it. We don't have, we try not to, I'm sure that it happens. We don't have, you know, the objective is not to have hobby horse preaching, not to have hobby horse anything around here where we have these pet things. And some of you have grown up in churches or gone to churches, you've, you've shared this where, you know, every week it was tithing or every other week, every month, you know, it was a sermon on tithing and on giving and so forth. But this is an opportunity to say something about giving. This is the, one of the reasons we give is because we're in gospel partnership for the work of the Lord around the world. And that is one of the ways that that takes shape. The Zenuses and Apollos of the world need money. They need support. The work of the Lord must always be supported in that way and many other ways. So as we look at this picture of gospel partnership. At the end of Titus, we see, so far, the ongoing work, the larger mission, the shared responsibility. And now we come to the final verse where we see two other things that characterize this partnership, this very last verse. And here, we'll first, firstly, we'll look at the brotherly affection. And then finally, the main concern. So the brotherly affection. Verse 15, the first part of verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. As we continue to look at this gospel partnership, we see that this partnership is not just a logistical thing. You know, think about it so far. We got the manpower, we got the itineraries, the agendas, the resourcing, the resources. Those ideas sound pretty cold. Those ideas can sound kind of cold and detached, the nuts and bolts, the business of it all. And in fact, so often ministry can become that. It's very easy for the work of the Lord to be nuts and bolts, logistics, agendas, itineraries, task lists, and so forth, that that is what the work of the Lord is. It just becomes this dry, cold thing, logistical thing but we are given no room for that. No room at all for that impression as we come to verse 15 and we see these warm greetings and the mention of love. It becomes clear to us that as we dig down deep into this gospel partnership, we're not just talking about being busy. We're not just talking about doing certain tasks or work or whatever. We're talking about this vibrant, living, warm, loving, gracious thing that is gospel partnership. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 16, 16, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. There's a discussion over what this holy kiss was, but it was, a, it was an expression of affection between believers, that this is the way you greeted a, a, a fellow believer in Jesus, or as you would say, a brother in Christ, an eternal brother, an eternal sister in Christ. All of this work and all of these relationships are bound together by the powerful love of God that is infused into every believer by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here. In verse 15, all who are with me, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. You see Zenos, you see Apollos, you see Artemis, Tychicus, Paul, Titus, the Christians with Paul, the Christians at Crete. And what is it that binds all of these people together so tightly? It's love. And it's not just human concocted love. It is infused into them by the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, it is this, as Jesus says, the end of John 17, for those of you who remember going through John 17, beautiful chapter. This is how it ends. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Listen to this. This is you, Christian. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ himself in you. Christ's love for the father, the father's love for the son, the love that Christ has called us to is in us. It's not something that we have to go find. It's not something we have to create muster up. It is in us infused into us by the risen, exalted, enthroned son of God, who by his spirit has regenerated our hearts and equipped us for everything in life that we need, in all godliness. The spirit is in us. And finally, as we close this morning, we have the main concern. The main concern of this gospel partnership, second part of verse 15, grace be with you all. This is Paul's final benediction. That's it. We're done with Titus. The letter is complete. But what do we make of this benediction, grace? One commentator, Philip Towner, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, he says this, the grace wish, that's what he calls this, the grace wish is not a literary formality, but rather a genuine prayer or blessing that seeks for the recipients the full experience of God's gracious and loving presence. All that's packed into this word. Grace be with you all. So what's it all about? Why does this partnership even exist? It is this one single word, grace, the glorious grace of God. We can't forget the vibrancy of it, the love that is inherent in it, but we certainly can't forget what it's all about. Everything is about grace. Everything that we're about, this entire gospel partnership, everything throughout the world as Christians come together, these short verses, 12 to 15, all this movement, all these individuals, why? Why are they doing these things? Because of grace. Because of what it says right up there in verse 11 of chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared. And on account of that, there is so much to do and so much hope and so much passion to be put out there for the glory of God. The grace of God has appeared. So what are we talking about with this idea of grace? See, that's the important question. It's not whether or not we should emphasize grace. Duh, of course. There's no question about that. Grace is everything, that's an easy one. There's no question of, should we emphasize grace or holiness? Grace is the central theme. It is everything, of course. The question is this, what is grace? Grace is this, as we've gone through Titus. Now catch this, this is important. It is the unmerited favor of God that by its very nature produces holy and hard-working zealots. That's a full definition of grace. Unmerited favor of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't go and, and beg God for it. And he said, okay, fine, it's here. He chose you from the foundation of the world that he would impart his grace to you freely, a free gift. But grace produces by its very nature, holy and hardworking zealots. Of course, there's no dichotomy between grace and holiness. Of course not. It's one beautiful thing in the life of every believer. As it says there, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, training us and saving us. It never trains us without saving us and it never saves us without training us. It is both always Together, We'll talk a little bit about that, a little more about that next week, but I think we have that here clearly as as we come to the end, we have Paul's understanding of grace being communicated to all of these believers. So our concern as we partner up in the gospel, our concern is this, that this grace, this grace might be discovered and treasured by fallen human beings made in the image of God. That's what we're about. That's what we're about here as a church. God's grace being made known in the hearts of men, those who are saved and those who are not. God's grace becoming more and more a reality in the lives of his people. This word, it's interesting. I'll say this as we close. This word grace, chorus. this is interesting. Never noticed this before. This word is at the beginning and the end of all of Paul's epistles, every single one. Every single communication of Paul is a grace sandwich. It is grace at the beginning and it is grace at the end. It is all grace and it must be at the beginning and at the end of all that we do. It must be our main concern. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for your mercy to sinners like us who don't deserve your love, don't deserve even to just be rescued from sin and then sort of left to ourselves, but most certainly do not deserve to know you as your children, to inherit the very same status and standing as co-regents with your Son. God, we don't deserve this. It's incredible Incredible to think that this is ours by your grace. God, help us to rightly see your grace. Help us to rightly partner as we move forward as a church, Father. Help us to be faithful to the work here and faithful to the work out there. Help us be inward-looking, always, and outward-looking, always. God, help us to be faithful to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.